guys. Hello. You guys can have a seat. Happy Thanksgiving to you all. I have to say, uh, we, we try uh, to do a pretty good job of tracking attendance uh, here, which is, that's, that's absolute crap. We don't do that. But, uh, <laughs> but you never know who's going to show up. So I'm so glad that you guys are here. Uh, we honestly were like, me and Omid thought we might be alone today, but just hanging <laughs> out. So um, thank you for being here. Uh, yeah, I'm not going to lie to you. It's been a terrible week uh, for Chelsea and I. So uh, we're going to grieve. We're going to do all of that. Um, but... There's still good news, um, and this this season and this message and this story uh, breaks right through the heart of the worst of all of this stuff. Um, so if this is your first time here, I apologize. I'm going to be a little more raw than normal. Um, I might go down at any second, so if anyone <laughs> uh, wants to help, please come up here and preach. Um, <laughs> but uh, I, I, I think the message uh, that we're gonna we're gonna proclaim this morning. Um, which is the message of Christmas, which is insane. I don't know if you guys know this. Basically, historically, Christmas is a really interesting thing. And I'm a history nerd, so uh, you're going to have to sit through a lot of this this morning. But historically, especially in the United States, his, uh, Christmas as a, as a thing, as an entity, wasn't actually declared a federal holiday until 1870. So that means 1776, we signed the Declaration of Independence. Almost 100 years it took for us to say, oh yeah, no, no, this whole Christmas thing, the birth of Jesus, that should be a national holiday. And we were based upon Puritan ideas. So just a whole hundred years of, of literally not wanting to celebrate this in that kind of a way. Uh, even more so in the city of Boston through the years of 1859 to 1865, it was illegal to celebrate Christmas. So if you're from Boston, you hate Christmas. <laughs> uh, it, it was just an interesting dichotomy. And in this country now, we absolutely embrace it. We embra embrace it commercially. We embrace it uh, throughout everything. Uh, but it wasn't always that way. Uh, and I think what's super interesting when you actually look at the Christmas story and the real context behind it and the real lives behind it, and you begin to unpack it, you begin to see that Christmas is way more complicated than just celebrating a baby in a manger. Uh, it's a day where we celebrate light that wins. Uh, Rabbi Lawrence Kushner has this amazing quote where he says, religion is this funny thing we do to remind ourselves that there is light that precedes even the present darkness. And when we look at Christmas historically, when, when we actually brought it up into the northern European regions, they were celebrating this thing called winter solstice. Uh, they were also, in Rome, they were celebrating a thing called Saturnice. I don't even know if I'm pronouncing that right, but basically it was a festival uh, about Saturn and about like this light winning. Uh, and, and the whole, the crazy thing about this festival in Rome was that on this festival, they flipped the entire society on its head. So the servants became the masters. People had to open their homes to the poor and they would host meals and they would do all of this fun frivolity. A lot of it had to center around a lot of drinking, but you know, whatever. They would do all of this and they would open their homes to people. And so what did the Christians do? The early followers of this Jesus guy came and they said, hey, that whole flipping the world upside down where the servants actually become the masters and all of that stuff, I think that looks like Christ. I think that looks like Jesus. And then when we went further up north and people were celebrating this thing called the winter solstice, which is basically if you live in a farm society, right, light is a big deal. 
Daylight is a big deal. You only have so much of it. You only have so much work you can get done. And in the winter hours, the light would start to fade, and there became a certain point where darkness was more prevalent than light. If you've ever been to like Sweden or any Norwegian country, they live in darkness for like half the year. I don't know why they still live there. There's boats. They can get out. Anyway, uh, but there's, it's just dark all the time. And so when, when we went up north and we saw that they would celebrate this one day on the 25th of December, which was the winter solstice, which declared this is the longest period of darkness that we'll have, but starting tomorrow, the light starts to win again. Starting tomorrow, the light takes over and all of a sudden darkness doesn't get the last word and our days grow longer and our work hours grow better and things begin to get better. Also, a little quick side note, which is fun. Uh, it's also the period in history and time where they would slaughter the most animals because they wouldn't want to feed them through winter. So there was tons of meat. And then it's also the time when fermentation was at its peak, so lots of beer. So these people were very happy by the time we got up there. <laughs> and we said, hey, this looks like Christ. Uh, what I want to do this morning is give us uh, this, this idea of light interrupting darkness and actually taking back and reclaiming that which was which was stolen from us. Uh, and I'm going to do that in a couple of different ways. We're going um, to talk a lot about, I think, the most underrated character of the Christmas story. Uh, and so for the next, the next four weeks, the next four Sundays in Advent, uh, we're going to talk about the names of Jesus, um, which are like Mighty God, Wonderful Counselor, uh, all of those names that he's given and the fact that he's given the name Jesus at the end. Uh, so we'll go through the names of Jesus. And then with that, I'm going to pair it with a character in the story. Um, and really, there's just a couple major, major characters, and that's Joseph, and that's Mary, and that's this little baby Jesus. But if you actually, it's fascinating, if you open up the Gospels, only two Gospels, Matthew and Luke, record the story of Christmas. Uh, and, and Matthew and Luke are kind of written in the middle. We think that John is the last Gospel to be written, which is fascinating if you think about that. The last Gospel to be written, by the time they got there, they really weren't very interested in the Christmas story, which means they were probably from Boston. But anyway, they, they didn't even include it in there, uh, which is just a fascinating thing. But for, for two Gospels, we have narrative accounts of these characters, of this specific place and time. And I think as we unpack the context of this, the historical context, the theological context, the spiritual context, and the emotional context, uh, we're going to find that this story has so, so much healing, and beauty, uh, and I think it's exactly what we need right now for our community. So uh, this morning we'll talk about Joseph, who I think is the most underrated uh, person in the Christmas story. Uh, Mary gets a whole song, he basically gets a dream, and then the scripture literally implies this, he gets up. <laughs> so he has to just, he just rises up, and then, then Herod's looking for them again and later in the story, and they have to flee to Egypt, and it says, and Joseph got up. His only job was to stand up. And I think that that's a huge thing for us right now. His only job was to stand up. And sometimes when life throws the craziest things at you and you just can't believe it, sometimes the best thing we can do and the only thing we can do and the only thing God calls us to and the only thing he's going to be there in is just enough strength to stand up. So as we go into the story and as we go into um, just uh, the, the story of an innkeeper, uh, all of that, I, I just want to pray over us uh, as we get started this morning. So let me pray. Lord, thank you for, um, thank you for being real. 
there's a whole lot of talk like you're someplace else, like you're outside the room. Um, there's a whole lot of talk about this little baby in a manger and how that can be so separated from, from what's actually true and happening right now in this room and with each one of us. The fact that we're here, the fact that we can look at each other in the eye just proves that you are in this. And God, I pray um, as we talk about uh, your story, as we talk about this, this beautiful story that has so much baggage and so much terribleness to it that you almost want to throw it out. But God, let us reclaim that story this morning. Amen. So, I think that Christmas is actually a giant story of an interruption. Um, it's that neighbor that comes over with, with no reward. I, so, my brother-in-law um, is a fabulous man, uh, and he will just, uh, he lives in Calabasas, uh, but for some reason, he's over at our house more than probably I am at any given time. He'll just kind of show up, and our door is pretty much always open, and there's no knocking, there's no nothing, it's just, I'll get like, we have a ring thing, so I'll get a ring notification, and my watch will go like, and then just Harrison will walk through the door. Um, and then he'll eat all our food, and then he'll hang for a little while, and he'll leave. Uh, but I think, I think Christmas is a perfect version of what that looks like if you're looking at me as darkness and Harrison as light, which you should. Um, but <laughs> I think it's a beautiful picture. of It interrupts. I, here's a crazy thing. The whole there's no room at the end thing, that all implies that Jesus comes uninvited. Thomas Merton has this amazing quote. I think we have it. Do we have those slides? It's the first ones there, David. Um, he says, into this demented inn, into this world, this demented inn, in which there's absolutely no room for him at all, Christ comes uninvited. Because he cannot be at home in it, because he is out of place in it, and yes, he must be in it. His place is with others for whom there is no room. His place is with others for which there is no room. So in a really crazy way, it's for the people on the outside, the people which no one will have, the people that are on the outs, that Christ is present with the most. It's not invited. In fact, the version of Christ we wanted never showed up in the first place. We wanted this mighty warrior, savior, going to take back everything politically, super radical, all that kind of stuff, start some wars, conquer some nations. None of that ever happens. Instead, we get this little uninvited guest who just has a habit of inviting himself everywhere. Jesus is classic at just going like, hey, you, I'm coming to your place for dinner tonight. <laughs> Zacchaeus, who's a little man, we all, if you grew up in Sunday school, Zacchaeus is a wee little man, little guy climbs this big tree uh, to go and get a better glimpse of Jesus, because as a short man, I understand that. You need to get to a higher place. So he climbs up, and I want to really paint a picture here. Zacchaeus is painted like this. this very, he's, he was a, a shrewd businessman. We paint him like this cute little character who climbs a tree to go look at Jesus. Zacchaeus was a head tax collector. Now, let me tell you what that means. You would have had to have fought for this position politically. And by fought, I mean you would have had to do some dirty trickster stuff to get to this point. Because basically, a regular tax collector could show up, and this is a triple tax system. So they'd show up at your door, and they'd say, you owe this tax to the temple, you owe this tax to Herod, and you owe this tax to Rome. Now think about it. These are substantiary farmers, which means they're farming for their day's worth of food, or they're working for their day's worth of food. And 
built into that. They have this crazy system where God says you can't work for one day. So they're working even harder if they're being pious religious people because one day a week they're not going to be able to work for their food and somehow they have to have enough to make it through there. So these guys would show up at your house and they'd say you owe these three taxes. What's left over for you? Not a lot. And on top of that, it's really a quadruple tax system because that tax collector could just go, oh, actually it's this number now. And that could be whatever they want to choose because they've got armed and forced guards and you'd have to fork over that cash and they would pocket it. That's just a tax collector. Now, if you have a chief tax collector, a head tax collector, they're essentially the mob boss that's just keeping tabs on all these other tax collectors and they're getting their cut from everything they're taking from everyone else at the exact same time. It's one of the worst types of people and to add insult to injury, Zacchaeus was a Jewish man in a Jewish culture. So the Romans, who were super good at imperial stuff and super good at conquering and super good at all that, they understood that if you put people of their own in power over them, they'll just begin to fight each other. All of a sudden, empire is this like super lofty idea, but we know Zacchaeus, we know where he grew up, and so he's our biggest problem. They just fight with each other. So this mob boss, this tiny little mob boss, who's a shrewd and pretty evil guy, hears that Jesus is coming and is infatuated with that idea, so he climbs a tree to get a better look. Now, historically, I don't want to give you too much of a picture of this, but they would just be wearing a tunic, so climbing a tree is not leaving a lot to the imagination. So Zacchaeus would get up this tree, and he looked down, and Jesus comes up, and he looks up at him, and he says, Zacchaeus, I'll be eating at your home tonight. And they go and they share a meal. And over the course of that meal, Zacchaeus realizes that this Jesus guy has got something, that there's something real going on. There's some sort of salvation. And so he says, hey, anything that I've stolen from anyone or anything I've taken, I'm going to give back twice. And Jesus exclaims, salvation has come to this household because this man is a man of the Jewish nation. Now, Salvation has come to this household. When we view salvation, what are we talking about? A lot of times in churches, we're talking about heaven and stuff that's out here. But for Jesus, he believed that heaven started right there at that dinner table. That that's where salvation begins. It's right here with us. And yes, it's eternal. And yes, it carries on. And that's gorgeous. But it's here now. And thank God. And so Zacchaeus moves on with his life. Jesus, another way he interrupts, he comes, he, uh, he's, he, he dies and resurrects. It's a whole big thing. We should talk about it sometime. Uh, but that happens, and then the first way that he reveals himself to his followers is they're all in a locked room, and he decides to pop through the doors, like the walls. No, no doors open. And he says, peace be with you. Now, Peace be with you to us sounds like a really regal, like, like sort of salutation or like hello. Uh, to them, that was the standard greeting. So this is essentially Jesus popping through the walls and kind of going like, hey, guys, what's up? Like, no, no, no sort of pretense at all. No, like, hey, don't be afraid. Just like, here I am. Hello. He's always inviting himself to the party. And more than that, he's always continuing the party. The very first miracle, the water to wine. Mary, who's a very smart woman, and we'll get into that uh, two or three weeks from now, uh, senses that something is wrong at this party. And here's the deal. It's the end of the party. 
but there's no more wine left. And so she goes to Jesus and she says, they need more wine, your time has come. And he goes, no. Here's the deal. Jesus is interrupted in that moment. He's doing something else. And Mary comes to him and says, this party needs more wine. And he responds to that interruption, which is the same as Christmas, which is the same as his life story. He responds to that interruption and moves to not only continue the party, but to make it even better than it was before. When he brings out the jugs of water, which are just gallons and gallons of water and turns them into wine, the, the host comes out and, and tastes it. And he says, usually the host will bring out the best wine first and then progressively it'll get worse and worse and worse because you know we're all on a budget, but you have saved the best wine for last. And here's the deal, folks. In that kind of a patriarchal, you're not letting loose that often. So new wine comes in and that party would extend for at least another day. No wonder they had to put him to death. I mean, he just keeps making the party go uninvited, uninvited. They didn't ask for that. They didn't even, there's no indication that they wanted it. His mom just probably wanted to party longer. I mean, this, this is all that's happening. He's constantly inviting himself to a table that was not set for him. But as soon as he sits down at that table, the party gets better. The invitation gets bigger. Everything gets more beautiful when he enters into that. It's an interruption. It's an interruption. Joseph, who gets almost no credit uh, and kind of disappears from our Bible stories right after this narrative, uh, is, is a classic story. And I think if you really want to look at the context of how Jesus was raised and the people that God put him with to actually teach him how to be a good human being, not that, you know, he's probably teaching a lot more of his parents than anything else, but... The traits that are told about these parents in this story, we begin to see that big time in Jesus' life. Uh, number one with Joseph is the way that this young man, and I say young man because at that period in time, if you were a Jewish man and you were going to get married and you were betrothed, you were between 18 and 20 years old. And then your future wife would be anywhere between 14 to 18 years old. So when we think about this story, we have to stop thinking about it like they're two very well-adjusted adults who are just having a child. No. It's it, two teenagers, likely, that are going through this. And pay attention when we read these scriptures, and if you actually open up these books and you read this stuff, which I hope you do, especially this week and the next coming weeks, read this Christmas story. Read it over and over. It's going to shock you in ways that you never thought it could. As we read this, you have these responses from these characters in extraordinary circumstances. And they end up becoming okay. And they end up following God in extremely unique ways. So Joseph, who we don't have a lot uh, of context for, uh, mostly in the book of Matthew, uh, we get Joseph's story. Luke is more focused on Mary. Um, and, and Luke is gorgeous in its own way, and Mary has this amazing response and everything. But I think it's very important to understand what Joseph is going through. Joseph has to deal with interruption in a way that is crazy. Uh, let's, we're going to read through a little bit of the story here, and then I will get to the interruption part. So um, it says, this is how the birth of Jesus took place. This is in the book of Matthew. Uh, when Mary, his mother, was engaged to Joseph, before they were married, she became pregnant by the Holy Spirit. Joseph, her husband, was a righteous man. Because he didn't want to humiliate her, he decided to call off the engagement quietly. Now, this is a big deal. Uh, if you are in Joseph's shoes, 
Mary coming and saying, hey, uh, I, I got visited by God and I'm pregnant is probably not going to fly, <laughs> right? You're going to look at the situation and you're going to go, okay, sure, Mary, look, but there's something else going on here. And not only that, I might believe you, but no one else is going to believe this story. No one. So when it says he could, uh, he could divorce her quietly, basically divorce uh, in the Roman culture, thank goodness the Romans were actually in power at this time for this reason, if you divorced someone, you would get divorce papers and that could go on quietly. That would mark whoever was responsible for the adultery, whoever was responsible for whatever, uh, whatever was wrong on both sides. In a, in a normal thing, before the Romans came along, you'd be stoned to death. Because that was the law, according to the Bible. So, when he says, I want to do this quietly, he's also doing something extremely unique. You were paid when you, uh, when you were betrothed to a woman. So what, happened is, what would happen is the father of the bride would come and they would give you a bride offering and you would take that bride offering that was meant to bless your family, that was meant to do everything, but in the case of an affair or any kind of divorce, you could divorce this person and keep that bride offering. So not only could Joseph get out of this quietly, he could actually get out of this on top because he's within every legal standing and right to do so. He can take this money that's rightfully his. He chooses not to. And as he was thinking about this, an angel from the Lord appeared to him in a dream and said, Joseph, son of David, don't be afraid to take Mary as your wife because the child she carries was conceived by the Holy Spirit. She will give birth to a son, and you will call him Jesus, because he will save people from their sins. Now, all of this took place so, the Lord, uh, so that what the Lord had spoken through the prophet could be fulfilled. Look, a virgin will become pregnant and give birth to a son, and they will call him Emmanuel. Then Joseph woke up. So, Joseph's only action, the only verb in this thing, the only thing he's doing is he wakes up. He rises and what's fascinating about this is this book of the Bible begins with a huge list of names. We call it a genealogy. And what's even more fascinating about that, genealogy in the Greek is the same word we use for Genesis, which means beginning. So the genealogy is there to mark that there's a new Genesis, there's a new creation about to happen. Something brand new and beautiful is about to explode on the scene. And when it goes through all of those lists of names, if you pick through them very carefully, Almost every single one of the names, from Abraham on down, has a verse in the Bible that corresponds with this. So they got up. When Abraham, who's the, the sort of first character we have uh, for the nation of Israel, is called to move, he, he gets called by God, and he said, God comes to him and he says, hey, I want you to get up and leave. And he's, a, he's an older man at this point, very well established. I want you to get up and leave and go to the place I have for you. And so the next line is Abraham just, and it says, and so he got up. And so he got up, and he went. He rose to the occasion. For the interruption that Jesus is, or that God is calling him into, he rises up and walks into it. And for Joseph, maybe the defining trait is that this is a man willing to stand in an interruption. He leans into and takes on the shame that Mary would have had to have done as an unwed person who is pregnant. In terms of marrying her, he's now consenting to that idea, and both of them are going to walk through marked and carrying that shame. Are we seeing how Jesus may have carried a little bit of this with him? 
that the story of their parents was that they were absolutely exiled. There's no room at the inn. Here's the crazy part. Joseph is from the line of David, which means if they're going to Bethlehem, there's going to be family there. And according to desert hospitality, which basically meant if you showed up at someone's door and they denied you hospitality, they were essentially saying, we'd rather you die. Because if you stayed out in the night, that's likely what would have happened to you. The fact that they even had to go to an inn would have been absolutely shocking for these early readers. They go, an inn? <laughs> what is that? Like, it, it just wasn't a thing. And the fact that the innkeeper says there's no room here, and here's the fact, here's the fascinating thing. That's always in the Christmas play. There's always an innkeeper. I myself played it as a young man with a big beard. Uh, there's always an innkeeper. There's no innkeeper in the story. There's no named innkeeper, and here's why I think there's no named innkeeper. Because whoever is running that inn is a perfect picture for every single one of us that we have to name ourselves. That when we say no to an interruption, we say, I don't have time for this in my life, we are doing the same thing as saying there's no room here for you. There's no room in this inn even though according to everything that their social standards went with, you would have to make room. You would have to. So the fact that this mighty God and counselor is placed within a manger is not an accident. It's a picture to us to say, are we making room? Or are we going to be the type of people that when that stuff comes into our lives, we say, no, I have no room for that. And I think it's fascinating because in the story of Joseph, I don't know if you have a dad like me. Have you ever been to a car dealership with your dad or a bank, an uncomfortable moment? So when you're there and they, I call it going dad at the bank where there's that like dad rage that comes where you're like, where have you been stashing that for years? <laughs> or it all just erupts me. It's on the phone with customer service or something like that where it's like, rah! There's no, Joseph does not respond in this way. Joseph doesn't scream at any of his family members at any of the end. That's not in the story. The story says that they go to this manger and they add dignity to that interruption. Not only do they add dignity, they actually invite guests, shepherds. There's like multiple levels of interruptions here. Shepherds are doing their job in the fields when the angels come and they're interrupted and they respond to the interruption by going in. Note that. No one else takes the time. But they go in and they experience that and Joseph and Mary welcome them in. To that situation. They're throwing a party in the midst of one of the craziest nights of your life. I don't know if you've just given birth and we're in a manger. I don't want company over. <laughs> and yet they invite them in. I grew up in a household. My mom, you had to give her like three months notice if I wanted to have a sleepover. It'd be like, my friend's coming over. Cool. July. We're in like December here. <laughs> And as a result, I have gone, the full pendulum has swung this far over here, and I love having people over. It's like my favorite thing in the world. I bought a pizza oven, way too expensive and way too big for our balcony that's about this large and probably an enormous fire hazard. But we love to have people over and to cook for them and to hang out with them and to hear their story. And, and last Easter, two Easter's ago, uh, we went through a huge growth spurt, and I thought it was about a group this size, and I was like, oh, this will be fine. I'll invite the whole church over to Easter at our apartment. Uh, and that was a plan. And so I was going to stick with that plan. We get to church on Sunday. There's 120 people in this room. And I invited every single one of them over. And guess what? Like 60 of you showed up. <laughs> it was insane. And in our tiny little one bedroom, we were like going in in shifts. We were like, we're at capacity. Everyone moved. But 
we had a beautiful thing. I, so uh, one of my best friends, uh, Chris, his name's Chris, he lives in Sacramento. Um, I've known Chris my entire life, uh, but we've never been that close. Like we've been, we've been close, we've been family friends, all that stuff, uh, but he called me and he said, when he was getting married, and he got married like 20, so I'm maybe like 21, 22 at this point. Uh, he said, hey, Josh, I, I would really love to have you up there with me. Um, and I assumed that me and groomsmen, that'd be awesome. I, I'm, I'm in. Uh, so I joined the bridal party, and we get there. Uh, I travel from LA to Sacramento. I've got my, my rented suit, all this stuff. We're there day of the wedding for the rehearsal. Uh, and they said, hey, could the, uh, the maid of honor and the best man please come up here and hold the rings? And I sit in my seat waiting for whoever was going to be the best man to get up. Obviously, that was chosen before I got there. And Chris simply turns around, looks at me, and goes, <laughs> and I realized, oh, I'm the best man? <laughs> and I totally played it off cool. Like, of course I'm the best man. And I get up, and I walk, and I grab the rings. And then I called Chelsea, because we bought him like board games on their registry. I was like, buy the Blu-ray player, get anything you can. <laughs> All right. So there, in the moment, we go through the wedding. We go through without a hitch. I've later told him this whole story, and I've gone, man, you did not tell me once. And he claims that that I'd love to have you up there with me was enough. It's not. Anyway, so we're moving through, and I had to give a speech. And I was a musician at this point. I was touring in bands. I was, I was, not, I was not doing this, uh, certainly. And so the only, the only time I had public speaking in front of people was when I was tuning a guitar, and then you'd kind of make a lousy joke as you're trying to get that E in tune. But I get up there, uh, and the bride, oh my god, the maid of honor had this speech that was just like, I, everyone was moved to tears, it was gorgeous, and then I had to follow that. And I went, I, what, what am I possibly going to say? Uh, and I get up, and, and I just kind of told the story of me and Chris, and then I did something kind of unique for a groomsman speech, mostly because I needed to fill time. But I just said, hey, uh, you know what I'd love more than anything in the world uh, is to just pray over them right now. And we prayed. Uh, and then everyone was moved to tears, and goodness, guys, that's the moment I was like, this is all I want to do for the rest of my life. I want to speak in front of people, because uh, I'm not going to brag. I nailed it. It was great. And so we moved on, and then, then the mother of the bride, uh, who's Lori, I love her. She scares me to death, always has. She comes to me, and she says, hey, by the way, make sure to let everyone know that the after party is at our house. Again, I'm not good at picking up on social cues, I guess. I thought that meant everybody. So... They then asked me back up, because I nailed it so hard in that first speech, to then pray over the meal uh, for the thing. And then after I got done praying, I told the entire wedding, by the way, the after party is at the Foxes. Here's the address, and we're all going to meet there at this time. Now, I got off the stage, and I have never seen a look of vengeance so fierce and so true. I, this woman wanted to murder me, <laughs> and I had to buy a lot of beer to make up for that. Um, but... It's an invitation. It's an over-invite. It's a crazy interruption. It's too much. And yet at the same time, those are the stories that we end up telling. No one wants to hear your story about how you got that promotion or how you're just killing it or you just keep winning, winning, winning. The only stories that we actually want to tell at the end of the day are the ones that have destroyed us and hurt us the most. It's the interruptions that move us through life and actually give us more life. It's the interruptions that teach us more about who Jesus is than any of the winning or any of the good stuff. And Jesus is so, so good at both interrupting and being right within the interruption. 
They're, every story in the Bible, I kid you not, it's like a road trip. So they're, they're starting at one point, and they're trying to end in Jerusalem. But it's just this wacky move because everyone that interrupts Jesus, he takes the time and he dignifies that interruption. Maybe because of something he learned from his parents. There's not a single instance in the scripture where someone comes to him and says, I need your help. And he says, no, it's only once. And that's with Lazarus. And he gets there and whole big story. Let's just say he, he showed up in spades. But every other story he is on a path, someone comes, and he doesn't just deviate from the path. He makes that a destination within the path. He dignifies the interruption. I think the most beautiful thing that he says is, I'm the vine and you are the branches. Because think about a vine. It knows where it's growing and where it's going, but the branches, it, it holds those and it gives it life. Even though they may be off in some weird thing, it still holds it and it gives it life. It dignifies the interruption. And that's the God that I actually trust. Not one that's like high and mighty off in the sky, but one that chooses to place himself within this story and actually here. Incarnation is a big fancy theological word. Basically it means God come down and actually embodied this human thing. Actually went through all of these crazy experiences, actually wept with people, actually saw death and destruction and actually experienced it for themselves. There's no other God that I'm going to trust. Because this God has actually felt all of this. And he's dignified every single interruption. If you are going through hell right now or have been through hell in any kind of way, that's what Jesus is best at. He undoes hell in every kind of way. This week, um, on Tuesday, uh, I, it sucks. I shared last week that uh, we were pregnant because we literally called the doctor and we're like, is it okay to tell people? And they're like, absolutely, there's a 5% chance anything could go weird. We thought we'd never be a part of that 5%, so we told you all we were so excited and happy and so many congratulations and so many letters and just so much love. Um, and Tuesday, we went uh, for a routine ultrasound, and a doctor, uh, was a nurse, went around Chelsea's stomach and, and then kind of didn't say anything and left and said, the doctor will be in soon. Never a good sign. Doctor comes in, looks at us, goes to the ultrasound, and he says, hey, we're going to have to have a very difficult conversation, and I'm so sorry for that. And in that moment, I mean, it goes from like sheer joy you're planning the next 20 years of your life to, oh, where are you now, God? It's an interruption like nothing else. And I'm, look, do whatever you want to me, but Chelsea is, if you've met her, among the sweetest human beings on the entire planet. Um, and so we left with the news that there's a rare birth defect and that our baby would not come full term. Uh, and we got in the car and we're just numb, we're silent, and we're driving. And Chell starts to cry, and then I start to cry, and then we have to pull over, and we hold each other, and we're crying. And, um, and I had this awesome chance just to look her in the eye, and I said, hey, I know it doesn't feel like this now, and this is garbage, and it's not going to fix anything, but I know that this is going to help so many people. 
that the fact that this is our story now means we're going to be able to help so many people because God is not someone who wastes an interruption. He dignifies the interruption. He makes it into something we can use and something tangible and something real and even in the depths. But that is the story of Christmas. It's in the darkness the light starts to win. In the darkest night, the light starts to win. And what I love about that is that it's slow. From the Christmas story to when we actually get Jesus rock and rolling, there's 30 years. <laughs> it's a long time. But the light will always, always win. Let's pray together. God, thanks. Uh, the space and the just the awesomeness that there is that we can we can share these kind of stories and that we can go through this um, I thank you for my church family I thank you for the people that are in this room that have hugged uh, Chelsea and I that are standing by us but it's not about um, it's not about the darkness it's about what comes next and so Lord I just thank you that we have a community that's this loving and this awesome and I pray for this to grow to, uh, to expand and to just, uh, just become more of this in our city and in our world. 